All right, church, let me ask you a question, a hypothetical question, but one for you to ponder as we dive into Daniel chapter 9. If someone could tell you exacting details of your future, would you want to know? <laughs> yeah, you say no, but you would kind of be tempted, right? You would be a little tempted to know, okay, what will be the future of my career? What will be my future job? What about the health of my family? What about the way my kids turn out? What about the future of my country? Lord, there's so many questions about the future. When we come to the book of Daniel, we are given a historical record and narrative of the past that speaks to not only Christ's first coming, which is still our past, but also Christ's second coming, which is our future. And when we come to this text, what we see here is a brief pause in the prophecy as the prophet makes a plea for mercy. Because what we're going to see is that Daniel returns back to the promises of God and he cries out for mercy and the Lord meets him in his need and gives him hope for the future and a promise of victory. It's all right here in the Bible spoken directly through an angel to Daniel, but now spoken directly through God's word to you. So to a certain degree, are we content in the revelation of God's word in Scripture? Do we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to reveal all that we need to know, not only for godliness and contentment in the present, but for mission and hope in the future? I heard a story, a very fascinating story. This is going to sound like something from the science fiction station. It's a story, but it's according to these two brothers, true. It's a story of a man named Al Bielek. Al Bielek, who lived on Montauk, Long Island, and he was at the Montauk Air Force Station. This was all the way back in 1943. And him and his brother Duncan, they got onto the ship, the USS Eldridge. And what happened late one night at sea is that they both fell off the ship and when they landed, they didn't land in the Atlantic. They landed, believe it or not, in the future. They tell the story that they were instantly transported to the year 2137. And they were in this high-tech hospital with all of this futuristic gizmos and gadgets. And around them was this panoramic television that updated them on future events. For example... The Florida Panhandle, gone. The Jersey Shore has been swallowed by the shore and is now underneath the Atlantic. Nations are battling against nations. People are war. So much so that the global population has been devastated from billions to only 300 million. This doesn't stop here, though. This man, Al, even in this futuristic hospital bed, he enters into a wormhole and then goes even further in the future to 2749, where all of the major cities of the world are now floating little islands. Some, supposedly, somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, he finds his way back to his brother, and him and his brother return back to 1943. They forget everything that they've heard. 
which I thought is interesting for today's study. They forgot everything they heard. They had almost like a time travel amnesia until they saw this movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, back in 1988. And then all of a sudden, seeing The Philadelphia Experiment brought back all of their time travel experiences. So they started going to these conventions. And they weren't prophecy conventions. They were UFO conventions. And they started gathering a following. Why? Because people are so interested in the future. How many of us know who Marty McFly is? How many of us know what a DeLorean is? How about a flux capacitor? Now, clearly, these guys aren't revealing the truth of God because if they truly were talking about the Philadelphia experience in their future travels, they would know that the Philadelphia Eagles beat the New England Patriots last year, and that would be the first thing that they mentioned. Or it could be they saw how bad they would be the following season and are a little embarrassed. What we see when we come to Scripture is revelation about who God is. And here's what's so helpful and important. God is, period. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the same, what does the word say, church? Yesterday, today, and say it out loud, forever. Our God is. That's why he reveals himself as the I am. There was a, never a point where he was not, and there will never be a point where he ceases to be. Our God always is. Our God is above time. Our God is sovereign over time. He's already in the future. He already knows what will happen in his sovereign grace. He reveals what we need to know. So what do we look to when we have questions, anxieties about the future? Yeah, the world might go to a psychic or to a crystal ball. If it's finances, they might go to some stock market soothsayer. They might even attend a UFO convention about time travelers. Our insatiable desire to know the future should be quenched in today's study. Because even though these two brothers have a very fanciful story, they're similar to us because we forget. We forget or we're not interested in what God has said in the past and how it pertains to our future. Daniel is a great example of what it means to trust in the promises of God for our present and how it shapes our future. And that's why this chapter, most of this chapter is not prophecy, but it's a plea for mercy. Daniel returns back to God's word, even at an older age, and he says, God, you said this. I believe it. Would you make it so? And that's a beautiful prayer to pray. Let's look at it, shall we? Verse 1 of Daniel chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Let's pause right there. Remember where we are. All right. So now the second half of Daniel is jumping around a little bit. The first half seemed to go in a little bit of historical order. And now that we're in the second half, 
and it seems like it's more telling about his visions and his prophecies, we are now returning to the end of Daniel's life. He's probably about 80 years old. This is probably very near to the time where he would rebel against all the desires of the satraps and even of Darius and would be thrown into the lion's den. What prepared Daniel to be so bold in his faith that he would defy the king even in the face of death, even in the face of angry, hungry, murderous lions. It's prayer. Listen, the reason why Daniel got thrown into the lion's den was not because of a military coup. It was because he refused to allow any king or government infringe upon his worship of his God. So this is the context Darius, who I believe, and there's some, uh, there's some discussion about this, I believe Darius is a local governing king of the Medes and the Chaldeans. If we look back at our previous study, we'll see that it called Darius a king, which he is, but he also ruled under the reign of Cyrus, who was the emperor of both Medes and Persians. So this man Darius is now in power. The unthinkable has happened. Babylon has fallen. Daniel, who was taken from Israel at a young age, had endured and outlast none other than not only Nebuchadnezzar, not only Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, but even the Babylonian Empire. And here it is. It's the twilight of his life, and he's returning back to God's word. How many of us know you never graduate from Scripture? Like, you never get to a point where, like, I know it. I got it. And frankly, I don't need it anymore. Jeremiah is at a point in his life where he knows he needs it now more than ever. When we all study for our driver's test, we study that manual in and out. How many of us have picked up the driver's manual recently? None of us. Some of us probably should, right? The Bible's different. The Bible is life. The Bible is grace. The Bible is guidance. The Bible is spiritual sustenance and nourishment. Daniel knows this, and he returns back to who? Jeremiah the prophet. He's going to quote the Old Testament law, the book of Moses, in his prayer, but it is significant here that he refers to Jeremiah the prophet and his writings as what, church? The very word of God. He's not going to say that Jeremiah's words are his own words or only Jeremiah's words, but Jeremiah's words are, in fact, the very words of God. Listen, the life between Jeremiah and Daniel, as far as their proximity in history, they're very close to one another. This is Daniel saying what Jeremiah has spoken is the word of God. So if there are skeptics or cynics or those that say, no, we didn't have an Old Testament until centuries and centuries later, got to be careful. What they're saying is the canon. But God's people never make the Bible God's word, right? God's people have always recognized that it is God's word. And even now, in a short matter of just mere decades, Daniel says, Jeremiah has spoken God's word. You know who would say it in the New Testament? Peter would say it of Paul, saying that evil men twist Paul's words in the same way they twist the Old Testament scripture. Peter's putting Paul's words on par with God's word in the Old Testament. 
So no, no church council ever makes the Bible the Bible. No, we recognize that it is inspired and it is God's word. And that's what Daniel does here. So he reads from uh, Jeremiah. Do you know what chapter he reads? Well, there's probably a couple different options. But listen, church, this might be a chapter that you're familiar with. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. You know this one. For I know the plans I have for you. What church? Declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Turns out Daniel liked that verse too. What we tend to forget is the historical cultural context of that chapter. The first section, the first verse of this section says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Daniel is returning to the promises of God and it will be out of the overflow of his saturation in the inspiration of Scripture that leads to true passionate prayer. There is a direct correlation to apathy to God's word and apathy to prayer. A wordless life will lead to a prayerless life. No, when we come to Daniel chapter 9, we see that the Bible reveals how to pray, not just in principle, but also in example we're going to see one of the most beautiful, powerful prayers in all the Bible. And I'm just going to read it because God's word says I should and that we are saved by hearing the word of God. But as I read this section of scripture, I hope that you have your Bibles open. I hope that you're listening to words, themes, threads. But even as Daniel prays, I hope you're praying as well. Let's look at it, shall we? Verse three, I'm going to read the whole section all the way down to verse 19. This is a lot of scripture, so I hope everybody follows along. Daniel says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I'm in verse 5. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by the servants, by his servants, the prophets. Verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us. 
by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. I'm in verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O God, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your name's sake, for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. On a daily basis, we hear people say, O-M-G. Oh my God. We hear a little bit of a different context in this passage. A little bit of a different emphasis. Because what's the emphasis in this passage? It's confession. Can everybody say confession? If you've been any kind of Christian religious circle throughout your life, you're familiar with the word confession. But oftentimes we have a truncated view of what confession is. Biblical confession, as demonstrated by Daniel in this chapter. Confession is not only what we aren't. Confession is also who God is. Amen? Daniel is confessing what is true. Confessing what is true about his people, about their kings, their princes, and their fathers, as if to say, from top to bottom... From the throne all the way down to the kitchen, we have rebelled against you. And notice in this passage, he uses the words we, our, nearly 20 times. But he doesn't think he's exempt from their sin. Also in verse 20, he says here, while I was speaking and praying, confessing what? My sin. Daniel, while a great example of faith, is not the object of our faith, Daniel sees his own sin even as his people's sin, and that's why this is so helpful. Because, yes, we love to confess sin. We just love to confess everyone else's sin, right? It's so common nowadays for Christians to speak negative things about God's church and to mudsling on the same people that Yahweh has covenanted with and now Christ Jesus has died for. 
what we see in Scripture is that we are called to an uncommon process. We are called not to just confess the sins of others. No, we are called to confess our own sins and our personal sins. Complaining about Christians and the church, it's common. Confessing my sin and interceding for the sins of my brothers and sisters, tragically uncommon today. Even in the church. One author put it like this, Herman Veldkamp. He said, what distinguishes us from the world? Is it righteousness? Well, it should be, but he actually says this. What distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is. And that is why we confess our sins. One of the most immediate revelations that we have when we hear the gospel by the Spirit of God using the Word of God to make us a son and daughter of God is what? We need God. We're lousy gods. We're awful saviors. We cannot fix ourselves, save ourselves, much less fix and save anybody else. Daniel realizes this. So what is he doing, church? He is standing on the promises of Jeremiah chapter 29. God, you have said that 70 years will pass. And Daniel, I mean, envision this. Look at it through Daniel's eyes. He's lived these 70 years. He's saying, God, I'm not trying to change your mind here. And I'm definitely not judging you. Notice how he says, to you belongs righteousness and holiness. And what? To us, open shame. You are faithful and we are unfaithful. You are forever good. And we have constantly rebelled. No, what Daniel's emphasis is on is on God's word to stand in God's word and to pray the promises of God. I heard one author put it like this. We should look at God's promises like Velcro. If you have ever raised kids, interacted with kids, taught kids, you know that Velcro is a gift from on high. Amen? Shoelaces, when you're trying to get three kids on the school bus, can be very, very stressful. So thank you, God, for the invention of swap, and they're done, and they're ready to go. I wish everything was Velcro. I wish I could Velcro my kids into their beds at night, right? He says what we should do is we should look at prayer and God's promises as so intermingled that they are like Velcro that we pray the promises of God. And when we pray the promises of God, here's what happens. It leads to pleas for mercy, but then it also leads to promises of a hope for the future. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is probably what Daniel's referring to here. Deuteronomy chapter 28 talks about how Israel, if they worship not the creator, but the created, if they went and pursued false counterfeit saviors, what would happen is God would judge God's people. Think of this. Before there was a promised land, before there was the boundary of Israel, before there was the hierarchy of the kings, before there was an established temple, God said this. He's not surprised by anything. At some point, you're going to rebel. And when you do, a foreign enemy is going to come in, destroy your city, and take your people. Sure enough, it's happened. So God's word is a good physician to diagnose our current 
problem, but God's word is also the remedy to get back to health and restoration. So he sees the diagnosis in Deuteronomy 28. We're here because of us. How many of us tend to blame God, judge God because of the bed and the mess that we're in and that we've made? I should probably see more heads going like this quietly. I think all of us. Daniel understands, no, God is perfectly righteous, and I and we are not. But he also knows that God is forever good and faithful, and it's both, church, it's both. God is holy and pursues us, the unholy. God is just and pardons us, the unjust. God is to be feared, and God, at the same time, is always and forever faithful. And that is really good news. That helps explain our reality. That God diagnosed how Israel got there, and then he also prescribes how to get out. So Daniel is being an example of what it means not just to confess the sins of the world around him, not just to confess the other sins of the people near him, but to confess and intercede for the ways that they have sinned together. When's the last time we have prayed like this? Billy Graham once put it like this. To get nations back on their feet, we must first get down on our knees. I believe it begins with us. Judgment begins first in the house of the Lord. What we see here is that Daniel prays this prayer. And he says, oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention. Delay for your own namesake. Oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. You know what's amazing? Right after this? Cyrus is going to make a decree, and he's going to send a man named Nehemiah and Ezra to go back and to rebuild the walls of the temple and the city of God. Seventy years, almost to the day. So Jeremiah prophesied something that came to pass. But now, even 2,000 years later, the Jewish people are spread all over the world. Was there a deeper truth to what is going on here? Remember we talked about last week? Prophecy is always about some kind of immediate, practical relevance, but ultimately prophecy is always about messianic fulfillment. Always, okay? So that's why Daniel is going to get another visit from none other than Gabriel. So we see a plea for mercy. Now in verse 20, we see a proclamation of love. Let's look at verse 20. When I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in the swift flight of time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. Verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you, what does it say, church? For you are what? Greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Let's pause right there. God hears and answers. God responds to Daniel's plea for mercy, okay? But how he responds is probably not the way that we or maybe even Daniel would have liked. He's going to give him more prophecy about not only the end of Israel's exile, 
but the end of all Israel's sin, and then one enemy that would come who would desolate, but that enemy would eventually himself be desolated. Daniel's going to get a vision, if everybody could pay attention just for one second, because this stuff is, is going to be difficult. Daniel's going to get a vision that I'm not sure I know how to interpret, and I'm not sure he knew what it meant, but here's what's beautiful. Daniel as a messenger, or Gabriel as a messenger from God reminds Daniel that he's loved, and even though he's trying to give understanding about the future, it would seem that it was enough for Daniel to hear from God and to be reminded that he's loved. Because what you're about to hear is very difficult to understand. And it's not like after the passage, Daniel rubs his head and says, Gabriel, you're supposed to help me understand this. 70 weeks, I now have 100 questions. No, Daniel's calm. Daniel's at peace. Daniel is trusting. Because why? Because he knows he's greatly loved. In the end... What if we did know the future, not only of our country, not only of our family, not only of our own lives, but every single part of prophecy? I could submit you this. It wouldn't be as good as knowing this simple truth, that you are loved by the one true creator of the universe. And that's enough. That's always enough. And I hope it's enough. Because what we're about to hear is very difficult to understand. What we see is a plea for mercy, a proclamation of love, and then verse 24 a promise of victory. Seventy weeks are decreed, I'm in verse 24, about your people and about your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, I've studied this passage. I've studied other passages. We have been pretty clear in our application of what we believe these promises and prophecies point to. Can I confess this? This is above my pay grade. <laughs> 70 weeks in the Hebrew, it means 70 sets of seven. So when it says 70 weeks, it means 70 sets. So is it sometimes appropriate to apply God's word when it is explicitly literal? Yes. I think it's easy to figure out when the Bible's being literal because it's literal. But it's also easy to figure out when it's being more literary because it's imagery, because it talks about like we focused on last week with the rams and the goats and everything else. This will be historical fact, but I, I believe we won't fully know how it plays out until we have the revelation of heaven and we have the revelation of Christ's second coming. 
This can't just be about the end of Israel's exile because this talks about an end, not just to an exile, but the end of Israel's sins. How do the end of Israel's sins and the Gentile sins and all who trust in Christ, how does that come? Through the cross of Christ. So it would seem that a temple is built. It would seem that a prince comes. But the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. When we get into Daniel chapter 10 in the new year, we're going to see that this prince is talked about as a prince of the Medo-Persian Empire. And these weeks, it gets even more complicated as far as how this all plays out. And this is when people who maybe are present right now or people that you know, they get out their charts and they talk about dispensations and they say all of these different, it's like Bible science. And in the end, the more I study it, the more confused I get. And that's why I needed to hear what Gabriel said to Daniel. And I believe that's why what Gabriel said to Daniel was what Daniel needed to hear as well. Here's the truth. God in Christ has atoned for our sin. Hallelujah. God in Christ will come and redeem what has been lost, that he, at the proper time, after this period of intense tribulation, he will come and destroy the enemies of this desolator, that this person, whoever it is, whether it's a Persian prince, whether it's Antiochus, I believe it all points to the Antichrist, even the worst king, worse than Darius, worse than Belshazzar, worse than Nebuchadnezzar, even that awful, evil, violent king is nothing compared to the one who is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So we will know one day who this prince is, but he will, whether in a spirit of humility or not, bow before the prince of peace. And it's in that prince that we find the prophet's hope for mercy. Amen? Okay, church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for God's word. We thank you that it is as clear, as beautiful, as powerful for a child to understand it. We also thank you, Lord, that it is deep and wide and mysterious that if you give us a thousand lives, we will still be pondering its truth. But right now, Lord, it's enough for us to hear what Daniel heard, that we are loved, that there is hope, for victory, whether it is the kings and nations of our day or even more nefarious kings to come, that the Prince of Peace has purchased our peace through his blood. And our King Jesus, the long-awaited anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, Mashiach, he has overcome. He is coming again. And the end of all of these weeks, all of these worries, all of these trials and tribulations will all fade away as we look and turn and seek his face and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. As we pray, Colts Community Church, I'm going to invite you to please rise. Let's stand together.